Hi, friend. You are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, a podcast created especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. My name is Janelle Wood, and while I have a background in counseling and ministry with women, the truth is I've been through my own seasons of questioning my faith. So if you've ever struggled with not being sure where you belong, or you felt like you were faking faith, or maybe a friend just shared this episode with you and you are feeling a little wounded or skeptical of all things God-related right now, welcome. This podcast is just for you. Finding Something Real is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. My passion is Jesus Christ, and for me now, After having been through some real ups and downs on my own faith journey, I believe Christ is the hope and the answer to this world more than ever. But don't take my word for it. Listen to my friends as they share their own grace-filled journeys with you. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'll find something real too. Well, welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood. And I'm excited that you're listening in for season four, where each month we have a different co-host share her personal faith story and ask some big faith questions. Then throughout the month, we're joined by guests who share with us and often address some of my co-host's honest questions. And if you're interested in learning more about this format or how you can be involved in keeping this show going, I want to invite you once again to check out my website, findingsomethingreal.com. You can click on support at the top of the page where you'll find information about a way that you can financially support this program through Patreon. But you'll also see a video where I share the mission behind this podcast. So please go over there and check that out. And thank you to those of you who are already supporting this, including uh, Colleen C. Colleen, thank you so much for signing up. And I just wanted to let you know how grateful we are for you. Um, And I wanted to start today by welcoming back uh, this month's co-host, Tasha. Earlier this month on the podcast, she shared her story as well as some questions she has about the Bible and Christianity. And if you've missed our previous episodes, I encourage you to go back and take a listen. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Hi, Tasha. Hi. (laughs) Welcome back. I'm so glad that your internet's working. I know it's been kind of sketchy in the past and you asked for prayer Mm -hmm. for it, Uh, but it seems to be working Mm -hmm. pretty good today. Yes, I've been praying really hard over the internet and claiming victory in Jesus that whatever needs to be said is going to be heard. That's awesome. That's great. Well, today, Tasha, I'm excited because we have a very special returning guest. He's a passionate apologist who loves to talk about reasons for faith, and he's also always willing to dive deep into some theological discussions Yet, he's always keeping in mind the central message of the gospel, which is probably why he's one of our favorite guests to have on this show. In fact, he was specifically requested by Tasha as someone she wanted to chat with today, and I love that. So, Alan Krostic, thanks for coming back. Great. Thanks for having me on again. <laughs> so, last time we talked, it was like over six months ago. How have you been? What have you been up to? Things have been good. Um, we had a... Uh, a- our family had a bout with COVID the last two weeks. So, uh, you know, that was a little bit rough, but we're, we're good now. I'm kind of getting over it. Just have a little bit of a cough, but yeah. uh, hopefully that won't be too troublesome. Oh, but, man. Uh, but you guys were okay. So far, so good. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. How about uh, you guys? Did you lose your taste or smell? My wife did. Um, I just got a splitting headache, but um, 
yeah, she she's she's still struggling with that a little bit. It hasn't fully come back. Yeah. So. Uh, well, I'm glad you guys are okay. And um, have you been doing any apologetics lately? Um, I, I haven't been doing any apologetics per se. I've been been uh, been teaching a Sunday school class at my church. Um, this month kind of took a hit with that. We haven't been able to be the last be there the last two weeks because uh, of COVID. Um, but aside from that, then you know, starting back up a men's Bible study on Thursdays. And um, as far as speaking engagements, stuff like that, I haven't haven't done anything like that yet, though. Yeah. Um, nothing lately. Well, last week we we talked with Greg Kokel with Stand to Reason, and he reminded. I, I was reminded of conversations with you and Chan Arnett in the past. I'm like, these guys should be working for Greg. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, love Greg Kokel. He's fantastic. <laughs> I've really benefited from his work. I mean, <laughs> yeah. so anyway, uh, yeah, thank you for uh, telling me about his book, Tactics, and all of that, because yeah. he was fantastic. The way he treated Tasha and I was really, really special. Yeah. When she say Tasha, I mean, he was he was really great. Yeah, I liked him. He's really a smart guy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So Tasha, you wanted to speak with Alan uh, specifically, and you had some great questions, including one that we didn't get to with Greg that I, I think would be a great one to tackle today um, regarding holidays and why we celebrate them the way that we do. So did you want to mm -hmm. go ahead and just share with Alan why you wanted him to come on the podcast and uh, that question? Uh, well, I've heard two different episodes with Al with you, Alan, on there, and um, you seem to know a lot about history, and uh, I uh, was hoping that maybe you knew more about the history of the traditions and where they originated from of Easter and Christmas. Sure. Um, how much depth do you want to go into? Because I can go into a lot of depth on these. Well, for the listener, I think as deep as we can go. Okay. Um, tell you what, let's start with Christmas. Um, now, there is a lot of claims you will hear on the internet. Um, they are legion. What does legion you will mean hear... for somebody who's listening and is not familiar with that term? Uh, I'm just no. going to say there's thousands. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot of claims. The great thing about the internet is that you can have a lot of information. The downside is there is also so much misinformation mm -hmm. and a lie that's inflammatory can be a lot more exciting than mm -hmm. just hearing the simple sober truth of something. Um, so there's many different claims um, when it comes to Christian that it's Christians have um, adopted a pagan holiday or, you know, we took it from the pagans or what have you. And that is, I'm just going to say right up front, it's largely bunk. Um, and there's many different claims. One is that Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Mithra. That's where it initially came from. Another one is that's the midwinter festival of Saturnalia. Mm -hmm. uh, the most common popular one is that it's taken from the Roman celebration of Sol Invictus, the birth of the unconquered sun. Um, you'll hear lots of stuff like this. Um, one that you hear a lot, you don't hear, I'll mention this one, but it's really out there. Um, the idea that even the Christmas tree is symbolic of the rebirth of Nimrod. You know, there's this story about Nimrod and his wife, um, what's her name, uh, Simarinus and their, their son Tammuz, and that the Christmas tree is the re rebirth of that. 
I'll hit on that one quickly just because it's the easiest one. That one is utterly bunk. It traces its origins back to a guy in the 18th century named Alexander Hislop. And he wrote a pamphlet back in 1853 that was called The Two Babylons, which eventually got expanded upon and re-released as a book in 1858. And in this book, he's basically coming against the Catholic Church. His thesis is basically that the Catholic Church is basically Babylon. They have Babylon cult in modern guise. And when you look at his book, it is just crazy. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of unsubstantiated, unsubstantiated claims. I once have heard him liken to the guy, um, uh, do you know who John Nash is? Have you ever seen the movie, movie A Beautiful Mind? Where Russell Crowe played the main character? Russell Crowe is this brilliant guy um, who's depicting a, a guy that really does exist named John Nash, who became a paranoid schizophrenic. And he started to sincerely believe that he was hired by the CIA to decode secret Russian messages in the media, in magazines, newspapers, or whatever. And he found the most wild connections between them, you know, and would be convinced that these are Russian messages. When one reads Hislop's book, one gets the same um, impression. And I don't think it's, I'm being uncharitable to say that. So when we read about Nimrod, um, Nimrod, we read about, we read about him in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 10. We're told that he was one of the first mighty hunters for the Lord and, you know, um, descended uh, uh, ultimately from Ham, from Cush. And um, anyways, a number of things you find in Hislop's work. I'll, I'll mention a couple of them. Um, one of the things Nimrod comes out, uh, pardon me, Hislop comes out and says is that Nimrod coming from Cush, um, that line is what produced all the the Asians and African-Americans, and his words were, quote unquote, Nimrod was a Negro. And he actually comes out and he says he was the first real and original black adversary of mankind, um, the recognized representative of the devil. You won't hear that part quoted. Um, so he kind of has those racial undertones in there. Now that alone wouldn't necessarily mean that what he's talking about is false. But when you look at the way that he tries to piece stuff together, it is crazy. So for example, He'll try to say that Nimrod is really all these other pagan gods, like Osiris and others. So to give you one example, he'll look at Osiris and he'll say, you'll see in this drawing right here, we have unequivocal evidence that Nimrod is the same person as Osiris. And here's why. First of all, you'll see from this, this drawing that Osiris looks black. Um, so there's that. But not only that, remember that Nimrod is a mighty hunter. And what do hunters have to do with? Leopards, they hunt leopards. Well, look at the type of garb that um, Osiris is wearing in this drawing. It's polka dots all over. Those are leopard spots. This is unequivocal evidence that Nimrod and Osiris are one and the same. And then goes to kind of look at a coin that has like, a, that he says comes from Tyre. No one's been able to see it or reproduce it. That he gets this whole idea of, um, you know, the Christmas tree springing up and is the symbolic rebirth of Nimrod. Um, it is crazy. And you don't just have to take my word for it. You can go online. You can Google the book. It's called The Two Babylons. You can read the whole thing for free in PDF format from cover to cover. Read it and come back and tell me that this sounds like serious scholarship to you. Um, these claims are nowhere else. They were repeated again by a guy by the name of Herbert Armstrong, who quotes a lot from his book. Mainly, most of the quotes you see are from that. But there's no original sources backing any of this up. It's just people after people parroting what this guy said, cherry picking and stuff. There's no historical basis to it. Um, 
so, so much for Hislop and his claim about the Christmas tree being the rebirth of Nimrod and all the rest. As far as some of the other legends, um, when it comes to Mithra, this is something that goes way back. It was reintroduced into modern culture by the movie Zeitgeist that came out, I wanna say it was in 2007. And it tried to say that this whole litany of gods, Christianity really copied them. Many of them were virgin births, born on December 25th. I, I can go through a few of them. Um, then a little bit later, Bill Maher, the comedian, he produced a movie called Religious, where he's kind of like making fun of the Catholic church and religion uh, in general, Christianity in, in particular, and repeats the same stuff from Zeitgeist. Um, but here's some of the claims. So with Mithra, they would maintain that Mithra was, uh, let's see, born of a virgin, uh, born on de December 25th. Uh, let's see, uh, 12 disciples, performed miracles, was dead for three days, rose from the dead, was worshiped on a Sunday. When you look that up, none of it is true. It, there's no original sources. It's completely fabricated. Virgin birth, uh, Mithra emerged from a rock with a hat on carrying a, 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 a torch and a dagger. You want to call that a virgin birth? <laughs> um, there's nothing about him being born on December 25th. That's just made up out of nowhere. Twelve disciples, um, depending on which Mithraic sect you were part of, he either had one or two followers. Performed miracles. Um, I would imagine most pagan gods probably would be known for that. The only thing he's really known for is killing a bull. We don't know why. Being, uh, you know, dying for three days, coming back from the dead. That's not true. There's no record of Mithra dying. So it's kind of hard to have a resurrection. And as far as being worshipped on a Sunday, well, I mean, whether even that was true or not, Mith Mithraism didn't become popular until the second century. Christians were gathering together on Sunday in the first century, you know, immediately after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Um, same stuff with Horus. You know, Horus, you have, um, you know, the claim is that he was born of a virgin, claim mm -hmm. is he was born on 25th. I'm trying to remember everything with this guy. Um, I think one of his marked by a star, birth was marked by a star in the east. Um, uh, did he have 12 disciples? I can't remember. Um, anyway, I, I think baptized by Anna the Baptizer, um, had a ministry at age 30, that kind of stuff. Also not true. Um, in terms of when uh, Horace had a virgin birth, Horace was the result of, well, his, his parents were Osiris and Isis. And Osiris was murdered and was ripped into many pieces. Mm -hmm. And Isis used her magic to put them back together. And for that one particular part, used that to copulate, which produced Horus. Um, so again, you want to call that a virgin birth? Be my guest. Um, also, nothing about December 25th. That's nowhere. Um, star in the East, that's completely fabricated. Oh, I know what it was. They also said he was adored by three kings. That's nowhere. And by the way, there's nothing that says Jesus was adored by three kings. It says he was uh, visited by the Magi. He received three gifts, but there's nothing that said it was just three Magi. Um, it was also said that uh, Horace was a teacher at age 12. That's not true either. And even if it were, that doesn't apply to Jesus. We have an account of Jesus asking questions in the temple, but there's nothing about him being a teacher. Um, so same kind of claims with Dionysus. You find it with that that Dionysus was, um, was uh, born of a virgin. That's not true. Depending on the story, Dionysus was either the offspring of an affair between Zeus and a human princess or between Zeus and Zeus's daughter, Persephone. Um, born December 25th? No, 
depending on the calendar, it was either between August 24th and 28th, or uh, let's see, was it, or either July, July 15th. Um, I, I mean, it, they, they said he was called King of Kings. No, he wasn't. In fact, he's not the kind of God that would be called King of Kings. He was the God of revelry, the God of party, not like Zeus. Performed miracles, gave people wine. He didn't turn water into wine or anything like that. Um, said he had 12 disciples. He had four followers. He had 16 uh, metal workers. I, it just goes on and on and on. Um, most of this stuff, people read it, they gobble it down, and they just start repeating it. Mm -hmm. um, so when you look at all this stuff from Zeitgeist, what you find is that Bill Maher is quoting Zeitgeist. Zeitgeist is quoting another modern book, which in turn quotes another modern book that has no original sources. It's just a litany of one person quoting from another with no basis. Um, so that's the Mithra one. Um, questions on that one before I go? I mean, I, I know this is a mouthful. Uh, a couple things. Uh, sure. I will bet that, uh, well, this is a statement. I'll bet that since he's uh, in, you know, I'll bet he's like part of the Freemasons. Um, that ties into my research. Everything you've just said ties into the research that I've come across, but I'm not going to go deep into detail. But, uh, and also the question is, do, do you believe Jesus was actually born on December 25th? No, I don't believe he was born on December 25th. Um, but you'll see in a moment that the early church did, and they had their own reasons. Hmm. Um, okay. It was not a date that was stolen from the pagans. It actually was the other way around. Um, but it, the story keeps being perpetrated that way. Mm -hmm. um, I'll say a little bit about Saturnalia. That's the other one that people say that we stole December 25th from. That's not true either. Um, the fifth century writer Macrobius tells us that Saturnalia was celebrated on December 17th. And over time, it got expanded to three days, December 17th to 23rd. If Christmas is being copied from Saturnalia, why did we wait two days after the festival ended to celebrate it on the 25th? Now, there are lots of different things that they did during Saturnalia. They, um, they would walk down the street singing naked, not really something we do on Christmas. Um, now, people try to say, well, that means it was, it was copied. They were singing, uh, people sing in all sorts of different contexts. So the next time someone's singing in a rally, am I supposed to say you're this is Saturnalia, guys. You're getting this from Saturnalia. <laughs> um, a, a lot of these things you find out are uh, association fallacies. Same thing with Easter. Um, other things that they did, they had the, um, during Saturnalia, they did what's, what's called the reversal of roles. So instead of the slaves waiting on the masters, they would switch it. And the masters would set the table for the slaves and serve them. The slaves still had to do the cooking, but the idea was they would reverse it. Um, it was a time of, uh, of, of drunkenness. There was a lot of rape and sexual morality. It was a time of breaking the rules, a uh, time of riotous behavior, that type of stuff, right? Um, Saturn is Satan, and they didn't oops. really realize they're working. So I, I, I want to push back on that. Um, I mean, one could make the one could make a claim that any worship of any pagan god is essentially a servant service to the enemy. I think that's true. Um, by equating Saturn with Satan and other things, that's going to come from more from this internet type of theology out there. 
Um, and one of the things that I, I, I definitely want to make sure that people keep in mind, don't believe everything you read on the internet. Try to find primary sources because the vast majority of the time, all you have is one, you have people repeating each other over and over and over again. And like I said, it is a lot easier for a lie that's inflammatory to spread because it's exciting, it's provocative, a lot more so than just simply telling the simple sober truth. Mm -hmm. There are conspiracy theorists everywhere. Um, do not ever just trust anything wholesale you read on the internet. Or do your homework. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Alex, um, can I ask just a couple of clarifying things? Yes. Because you're so good about going, you know, diving deep into stuff. Um, and for the person listening, um, I imagine a lot of what you just talked about is all brand new information. They're like, what is all that? Um, but I, it's great. So a couple of things you mentioned. Um, would you explain what an association fallacy is? So an association fallacy would be someone takes one, kind of like what you see Hislop did. Okay, we know that Nimrod was a hunter. He probably hunted leopards. We see this uh, figure of Osiris wearing a coat that looks like it has leopard spots. There you go, same person. Or Ishtar, sounds a lot like Easter, same thing. Mm -hmm. Skeptics used to do this with the book of Esther. They said the book of Esther, Esther is just a Jewish retelling of the Babylonian myth of Ishtar. Because doesn't Esther and Mordecai sound a lot like Ishtar and Marduk? Mm -hmm. Doesn't that sound like the same thing? Mm -hmm. um, you'll have stuff like that everywhere or, or take, or you'll have like um, different, um, let's see, I can use another one, like different things that seem like they're similar. Like if I were to tell you about a ship that sailed and that, that was put out to sea in, 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 in the month of April, it hit an iceberg, it sank. And the letters of this ship, to give you a hint, start with the letters, let's see, what does it start with? Um, T-I-T-A. Mm -hmm. What ship do you think I'm talking about? Titanic. Titanic. That does sound like Titanic, but it actually also describes a ship, a fictitious ship called the Titan that was in a, a novel called Futility that predated the events of the Titanic by something like 14, 18 years. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I submit that the idea that the event of the Titanic is a myth. You can do this with tons of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, you can find it with the similarities people make between the assassination of JFK and Lincoln. I'm sure you've seen that on the internet before. Mm -hmm. Have all the similarities, so we should conclude that they're both met. So people do this a ton. So, um, so for somebody yeah. listening who is, you know, growing up in this culture, which constant information overload, um, what kind of resources should people be looking for when it comes to, I mean, uh, uh, Tasha, you just mentioned something that I'll probably cut out in the episode about sure. the Freemasons because we, we don't have time to get into that. But how do you find, you, you see something on the internet that's disturbing, that disturbs your spirit. You go, whoa, what is this? Then yeah. what do you do? How do you respond to that? The first thing I want to do is I want to look for sources that say just the opposite and see how they compare. Um, and I'll continue to dig. And I'll do that with anything, even things that I'm favorably disposed to. I want to see what the opposition says. 
because my argument is only as good as it overthrows the strongest form of the argument of the opposition. In everything I do, I want to know my opposition's argument better than they know it. Mm-hmm. And then I want to overthrow it or see if I can overthrow it. If not, so much the better. It means I'm believing the wrong thing. Apparently they got it right and I should move that direction. Um, but the thing that I want to encourage people to do is to look at both sides um, for everything. Um, you know, there are great resources out there. I mean, I, I, there's trusted and trusted resources I like when it comes to asking these type of questions, whether it be reasonable faith, um, you know, um, that's, there's some great YouTube channels out there. There's uh, Mike Winger has a great channel. He goes over tons of stuff like this. Inspiring Philosophy has a great channel. Um, and some of that, sometimes they'll put it in snippets and, and quick sound bites. So you don't have to devote a whole lot of time to listen to it. And they do their homework. They will bring up some of the primary sources. Like some of the, sometimes the primary sources can be rather expensive. Some of these scholarly works can kind of get up there. You know, but the great thing is, you can even still look at them. You can get a book on interlibrary loan and you can read it for free. I like to typically just go to the original sources and look at it. Um, or you can look at trusted sources where there are uh, other channels or other websites where you know they do go after the primary sources and don't just kind of like state stuff to be provocative. Um, does that answer the question? Yeah. Tasha, do you have any follow-up questions to that? And then I, I just had a couple of clarifying questions about the holidays. Sure. Uh, no. <laughs> it's a lot of information, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah. uh, it, it's a ton. And it's like I said, it, how deep do you want to go? Um, yeah. Well, Alan, it, I love that you shared all the things that are out, like not all of them, but quite a few things that are out there that are, you know, bunked. But tell us the true story. Tell us the true story of Christmas and the true story of Easter, where yeah. they're at now. Do you, um, let me answer that with this question. Um, the main one that people will try to say that Christmas was stolen from was Sol Invictus. That's the main myth that's perpetuated because that was celebrated on December 25th. I can share the story of where December 25th actually did come from um, and where Sol Invictus does or does not play into that. Would you like me to kind of go into detail about that? Okay. Yes. Um, The whole idea that December 25th was stolen from pagans actually traces its roots back to two particular scholars in the 18th and 19th century. Um, The first scholar's name was Paul Ernst Jablonski. He was a German Protestant who was bent on showing that the fact that Christians celebrated the 25th was just another one of the many ways that Christianity was paganized to become the evil thing of Catholicism. So obviously he was not a fan of Catholicism. The other scholar was a Catholic. He was a Benedictine monk named uh, Dom Jean Hardwin. And he was seeking to show that the Catholic Church adopted certain pagan festivals, not necessarily to paganize the gospel, but as an evangelistic tool, all right? So this idea that December 25th was stolen from pagans traces back to the 17 and 1800s from these two guys. What they did is they looked at the Julian calendar, which was created in 45 BC under Julius Caesar, and saw that the winter solstice fell on December 25th on that calendar. 
So they automatically assumed, well, this means that this date had pagan significance before it ever had a Christian one. But this wasn't necessarily true. Fact of the matter is that date had no religious significance on the Roman pagan festal calendar until the time of Emperor Aurelian. Um, and even prior to Aurelian, the, the cult of the sun wasn't even a prominent thing in Rome. Now, during Aurelian's reign, there were two temples of the sun. Um, one of those temples was maintained by the clan that Aurelian was part of, but neither one of those temples had its dedicated dedication fest festival attached to December 25th. When was Aurelian? Like what? what Aurelian reigned from 270 to 275 AD. He was assassinated in 275. Um, but one festival had his dedication, uh, one temple had his dedication festival on August 9th, the other one on August 28th. Now, over time, those two temples fell into neglect as more Eastern cults of the sun, like Mithraism, became more popular. But none of them were ever attached to December 25th. Right. As I just said, um, you know, he uh, Aurelian reigned from 270 to 275. He decided in 274 to institute the celebration of Sol Invictus, which is the birth of the unconquered sun. And he did this because the Roman Empire was in decline under his rule. There was a lot of internal unrest. Um, things weren't going well economically. They were constantly attacked from Germanic tribes and the Persians. And so he did this because he saw this as a time where the, you know, during the, the solstice, the sun is turning things around, seeing this as a symbol of rebirth, as a symbol of uh, perpetual rejuvenation for the Roman Empire. And what we need to do is we need to get back to worshiping and recognizing the kind of gods that made Rome great. That's the idea. And if this just so happens to coincide with a day that the Christians think is important, so much the better. He was hostile toward Christians in his age. Now, the question is, is there any evidence that Christians considered the date of, of December 25th important prior to the time of Aurelian? And indeed there is. Now, don't get me wrong. The first evidence of when that date was celebrated, December 25th by Christians for Jesus's birth, comes a bit after Aurelian. We find that in 336 AD. But there is good evidence that Christians in the East, the Greek Christians of the church, as well as the Latin West, were attempting to figure out Jesus's birthday way before they ever decided to celebrate it in a liturgical way. So way before Aurelian came on the scene, they were trying to figure out Jesus's birth. And the way they were able to try to figure it out is because figuring out his birth was a byproduct of trying to figure out his death going as early back as the second and third centuries, probably even coming from the first. And I'll explain why that is. Um, so it's important to understand that the way they saw it, and a lot of people see today, when you look at the gospels, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to place Jesus's death on Passover day. Whereas John's gospel seems to place it on the eve of the Passover, the day before. Now, we can bracket that and come back to that and talk about why that is. But for right now, I want to set that aside for a second. Um, <clears throat> the early church um, sided with John's account, all right, whether right or wrong, they sided with him. And they placed the date of Jesus's death on the 14th day of Nisan. Now, as an aside, even scholars today agree that Jesus's crucifixion either took place in year 30 or year 33. They have it down to the day. 
that it was either on April 7th of year 30 or April 3rd of year 33. And the reason why is because <clears throat> those are the only two possible dates during that time period that the eve of the Passover could have fallen on a Friday. That's the idea, all right? So the early church initially saw it as 14th day of Nisan. Well, <clears throat> as the early church was forced to separate from Judaism, um, you know, uh, and they therefore had to separate from the Jewish lunar calendar, they found themselves entering into a world of very different calendars and then for, therefore had to devise their own way of determining these dates in the Passover. They couldn't wait to be informed by the Jews and trying to devise their own would have put them at odds with both the Jews and the pagans and caused all sorts of mess, all sorts of a mess. So this worked out very differently between the Greeks in the East and the, you know, the, the Latin Christians in the West. And what the Greeks in the East did, they wanted to find an equivalent day for 14 Nisan according to their solar calendar. Um, and so they wanted to do it at a time where the spring equinox fell. So they went with the date of, what was it, 14 of um, Artemisium. But by 300 AD, um, the Greek calendar was superseded by the Roman calendar. And the end and, and beginning dates didn't necessarily coincide. So according to the Jewish lunar calendar, it consisted of 12 months and 30 days each. And every three year, few years, by decree of the Sanhedrin, they would add a 13th month because that helped synchronize the equinoxes and the solstices and make sure that the, you know, the, um, the seasons didn't flow into in, you know, inappropriate months. So that's why kind of like it was a big deal for them to kind of figure out how to do it in an alternative way. Well, when the Roman calendar came around, um, 14th, the 14th of Artemisian got changed to April 6th. That was the date for the Greeks in the East. For the Latin Christians in the West, in Rome and North Africa, by the time of Tertullian, they determined that Jesus's date of death was on um, March 25th, uh, year 29. Now, I don't think year 29 works because the eve of a Passover couldn't have fallen on a Friday, but that's what they came up with. Now, here's the deal. According to Jewish belief, um, that, was, that was very popular around that time, they believed that when the great prophets of old, when they died, they died on the same day that they were conceived, all right? That's what they believed. It was kind of like folk theology, but that was their thing. And so what did they do to determine the birth? They would add nine months. So nine months from March 25th is December 25th. Nine months from April 6th is January 6th, right? So eventually the December 25th date ruled out, you know, won the day. I mean, you still have the Armenian church that celebrates April 6th, but that's how the dates were found. And that was early because that was a direct byproduct of trying to figure out the death. And that came before Aurelian. Now, you might say, well, that sounds really good. Is there any textual evidence um, that it came before Aurelian? And there actually is. There's textual evidence. You find it in um, uh, Hippolytus, who lived between 170s um, to the 240s. Around 205, he, in his commentary on Daniel, specifically when it came to Daniel chapter 4, verse 23, he, he writes about it. And I, I, I actually, had, I have a quote on this. Let me see if I can find it because I figured I would want to find this and read it. Um, let me see. Uh, How do you remember all this? Thing, I, things stick with me and I don't know why. Um, <laughs> even when I, was, when I was young, this is kind of as an as aside, and I played video games. When, remember Nintendo was out in 1986 and I borrowed for one week the game Mike Tyson's Punch-Out from somebody. <laughs> 
and gave it back. And to this day, I remember the code for Mike Tyson, 007-373-5963. I don't know how it stuck. It just did. Wow. So things just kind of stick. I don't know why. Um, but um, here we go. This is what uh, this is what Hippolytus writes in his commentary on Daniel. He says for the, you know, and, and to kind of give some, uh, some background, he's trying to align up um, all the different events that line up with what he's talking about. He says, for the first advent of our Lord in the flesh, when he was born in Bethlehem, eight days before the Kalends of January. Kalends of January is what was, was used to refer to the first day of the month. That comes out to be December 25th. Um, the fourth day while Augustus was in his 42nd year, but from Adam 5,500 years and so on. So you have almost a century before Aurelian, December 25th, being recognized as Jesus's birthday. Well, what about the April 6th date? You find that in Clement of Alexandria. Um, also, um, in year 200, dates Christ's nativity to one of the dates is January 6th. He was talking about a lot of people had, had differing views on it. So again, both dates predate Aurelian. So, so much for the idea that Christians stole December 25th from Emperor Aurelian. But most people aren't going to dig that deep. They're going to hear it. They're going to parrot it. And they're going to perpetuate it. I mean, it's, that's just how it is. Um, questions on that. I can go on and on about the bunk claims about Christmas trees and all the rest. Um, I haven't even hit the tip of the iceberg. I, questions on that, because that was a mouth load. Of the uh, the branches that people spread around their house, like the garland nowadays have, but back in the day it was uh, to represent the spring to come. What about that? And the like the Yuletide carol or whatever the Yule Yule uh, traditions. Yeah, Do you know so, anything about those and how they so tie in? As far as the garland, no. But see, but here's the thing. Let's assume it's true. I suspect that's probably not either, as well as much of the stuff on the Christmas tree. People try to come against the Christmas tree, even, <laughs> even from passages in the Bible, like Jeremiah chapter 10, 2 through 4, and all sorts of stuff. Um, and I can go over that. But here's the deal. Let's, let's pretend all of this is true. Let's pretend the internet theologians are correct. It still wouldn't follow that it would be an issue. Why? So what follows from this? That if a pagan ever does anything or uses anything God creates in an inappropriate way, it's tainted forever and we have to run from it from all time? Is that the idea? Think about scripture mm. itself. In scripture, think about even titles for God. I'm going to go over a couple of things. Did you know that God being depicted as coming on the clouds, the cloud rider? actually comes from the Baal cycle. It came from the Canaanites. The Jews appropriated that as a way of poking Babylon in the eye. This is all throughout the Bible. Where they take certain things the Babylonians did and kind of in a polemical fashion, poke them in the eye, basically their way of saying, no, it's not Baal that brings the rains. It's Yahweh. Now we're going to appropriate that. Um, same thing with titles like King of Kings. You know, that was first attributed to the Persians and Babylonians, to Nebuchadnezzar and the rest. Um, should we not be calling Jesus the King of Kings? Um, or think about like this in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 28. 
you know, one of the things that Paul says, he says, you know, he says, for in him, we live and move and have our being. Even as your own poets say, we are all his offspring. Did you know Paul is quoting from two Greek poets there? In the first one where he says, in him, we live and move and have our being, he's quoting from Epimenides of Crete, who was a pagan. He was a, a Greek seer and philosopher and poet. The second one comes from Aratus's poem called uh, Phenomenon. And both of these, when they're talking about in him, we move and live and move and have our, brain, our being, and indeed we are all his offspring, they're referring to the pagan god Zeus. How dare you, Paul, appropriate something from pagan world and bring it to make your theological point? Um, a lot of people don't know that. I can read you the poems from both Epimenides and Aratus. Or, I mean, shoot, th think about this too. Um, you know, if we look in, in Exodus chapter 20, um, verses three through six, in fact, I'm, I'm gonna go there because this is, this is a very important point when it comes to idol worship and making an idol out of anything. It really comes down, it's not the object itself, it's what you're thinking about the object itself. So if you look up Exodus chapter 20, let's go there real quick. It's part, part, part of the Decalogue, right? Part of the Ten Commandments. He writes, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make, this is the part I really want to get in, verse four and onward. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. All right, let's stop there. All right, so don't make any carved images of anything on the earth, under the earth, and heaven above, or whatever. I am the God, I'm, a, I'm your God, a jealous God. Or right on the heels of that, then he tells them how to make the tabernacle. It tells them how to make the Ark of the Covenant. Right? And you have all sorts of things being uh, incorporated into the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. You have cherubim on top of it. Right. I thought we weren't supposed to make anything that's in the, in the heaven above, on the earth, or in the water below. I was wondering um, about that. Yeah. And, and here's the other interesting thing that a lot of people don't know, but virtually every scholar worth their salt will tell you. Um, scholars have looked at the Ark of the Covenant and have maintained that it is the spitten image of what was called an Egyptian palanquin. Um, and, on, and they said that the cherubim seemed like the Israelite version of the goddesses Isis and Nephthys that were on the Egyptian palanquin. Now, what is a palanquin? A palanquin was a box and it, it looked like an ark. And it had a lid on it and on the sides were these two beings, Isis and uh, Nephthys. And they were, the whole sole function was to guard the contents of what was inside the box. What the Egyptians did is they put idols uh, in the box and they carried it around uh, to festivals and whatnot. Um, and a lot of uh, 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 scholars have said this would make sense given the context of Moses coming from Egypt. God is using right. something that they would have already been familiar with. And even the cherubim, now, now granted, no idols were put in the Ark of the Covenant, obviously. It was the tablets as well as Aaron's butted rod, right? But, um, but I mean, you, 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 know, you find God kind of modeling it the same way. And cherubim, cherubim isn't an Egyptian term. It's an Akkadian term. It comes from Mesopotamia, the, uh, the caribou, right? But the idea is these were supernatural divine guardian beings, divine throne guardians. 
or their, their sole purpose was to guard uh, sacred presence. And so you have the cherubim with this too that were taken from pagan art. So here's the question. Here you have God telling them. I mean, you, you have them using um, these two beings or objects taken from pagan art, pagan practices, and pagan cultural trappings and using it for Israelite religion. And not only is God okay with it, he told them to build it. Now, how do we square that with what we're just told in Exodus chapter 20, verses three through six? The difference is it doesn't matter about the object. The key is, he said, you will not make those and bow down to them. Right. When someone's looking at the Ark of the Covenant, they're not worshiping the cherubim. They're not worshiping the object of the Ark. They know better than that, or at least they should. That's why. I got news for you. When you look all throughout the Bible, you find that taking pagan things and reclaiming them for God is scriptural. It is everywhere. Everywhere. Can we make this practical, Alan? I want to ask you a, a question that I wasn't planning on asking you, but since you're uh, bringing this up, I think it's so compelling. Sure. Because uh, this comes up a lot in, in very, um, I don't know, modern situations. Um, and I, I have my own personal beliefs on this, but uh, listening to you talk, I, I wonder what your thoughts are. Um, people who, who take yoga and use it uh, with Christian music, worshiping God, and then people who say, you can't do that. You can't use, uh, you know, sun worship, things that were meant to worship the sun and appropriate them for God. How do you respond to that? Because that's something I've heard over and over again. And even people that listen yeah. to this podcast have told me, I don't know how to deal with this. I really like yoga and I feel like I can't do it. So here's the deal. I would go back to what Paul says about eating meat sacrificed to idols, right? We're, I'm trying to remember the reference. Was that 1 Corinthians chapter 8? Um, hold on. Yes. One of the things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, he says, therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there's no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all the things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so even like Paul saying, look, what matters is what's going on up here and in here, in your head and your heart. We both know that an idol is nothing. I can eat of this stuff with a clear conscience, even though I know what they're using it for and what it's been used for. But if, you, if you're somebody who's saying, Paul, I, I know you're saying that, but I uh, still don't feel good about it. They'll be like, that's cool. For your sake, I will not do that mm -hmm. with you. you know? So I, I think one needs to be respectful to the weaker brother. So like, for instance, like if, I'm, if my wife, if I was really into yoga, my wife was not for that reason, I would be like, you know, out of respect for you, I won't, I won't do it. And I think it's good that we recognize now that there's some people out there that are, and I, I, one scholar put it this way, who are professional weaker brothers. And it's not that they're really just, this really bothers me. It's like, I just don't like it. And I'm committed not to like it. And I'm going to put it in your face so I can feel spiritually superior. That's a completely different matter. But I don't care what it's called, yoga, shmoga, whatever. If it's just a sense of movements that you're doing, 
you're not meditating. You're not praying or worshiping some Hindu God, right? You're doing it because it, it helps you. It helps strengthens your muscles, your core or whatever. That's what you're doing it for. I honestly don't have a problem with it. Um, and it seems if we're to follow the principle that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, that's how we would apply that. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I have the same view. <laughs> Just it's, yeah. um, I, I appreciate you bringing 1 Corinthians into it as well, because I do think that it's something that we can go, well, I have the freedom to do this. And then it becomes a stumbling block to somebody else. And then we're not yeah. acting out of love. But um, and, yeah. and, you know, it, it's interesting because if you really want to take that the whole way and be like, I don't want anything that's associated with anything from the pagan world at all. Well, I guess you need to stop naming the days of the week. Monday, Tuesday, what? I mean, where do you think those names come from? I mean, you probably say those more than the name of Jesus, right? Or what about the days of the month, right? June and so forth. I mean, where do you think we get those names? And even if you were to say, well, okay, well, no, I'll just go back to what the Jews did. You know, 14th day of Nisan. That came out of Babylon. Um, I mean, it, it, it's silly. It's silly. I mean, if you're... If, if a relation applies to reason, you have to apply it consistently across the board. And once you do, you start to realize how silly this becomes. Um, so tell us about the Christmas tree. Oh, so the Christmas tree, no one really knows where the Christmas tree came from. Now, some people try to look at, um, I don't know if you want me to go over Jeremiah chapter 10 or not. Sure, um, you mentioned okay. it a couple times. Because um, I, I know there's people out there who probably looked at this, but if you go to Jeremiah chapter 10, um, uh, my phone, I don't know if y'all had the Bible app, but this thing delays quite a bit on me. Okay. In Jeremiah 10, this is what it says. Learn not the way of the nations nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked by an ax by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Doesn't that sound like a Christmas tree? Right? Yes, it does. So people are, <laughs> so people are like, this is talking about a Christmas tree. See, Christmas trees are evil. No. It's not. And here's why. Um, it says that it's worked with an ax by the hands of a craftsman. In other words, this is a craftsman. This is someone who's skilled at carving things out of wood. And they're about to use this tree to carve something out of wood. They're going to make an idol out of it. And you find this same term, you find it in like Deuteronomy 27:15, and you find it in Exodus. When this term is used, it's virtually always used of someone who is making an idol. Um, and then it says, um, you know, decorate it with silver and gold. We're thinking Christmas ornaments because that's the preconceived notion we're bringing in it. No, it's talking about overlaying it with silver and gold like they would do with idols back then. And in fact, if you read further, verse five flat out comes out and says it. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cumber field and they cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. That's what he's describing. Now, why would he liken it as a scarecrow that cannot speak or cannot walk if he's just talking about a tree? He's talking about what they've made out of the tree. And in fact, you can kind of find a parallel example of this if you go to Psalm chapter 115. Um, 
Let's go there. Here we go. Starting verse four. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So all who trust in them. Doesn't that kind of sound like what we just read? Mm -hmm. Right? Um, but you will have so many people that will read on the internet. Clearly, this is Christmas trees. Bam, it gets my stamp of approval. I am now going to proclaim that to everybody without doing a shred of digging or homework to see if that idea has any merit whatsoever mm. at all. But what do you say? I mean, I think that this is a legitimate argument. Um, yep. Something along the lines of Christmas has been turned into a commercial event where no. we worship Santa Claus, not Jesus, where we uh, put up a bunch of decorations that have nothing to do with him and we celebrate excess instead of uh, what he did in the manger. How do you respond yeah. to something like that? Because I think that's part of this, right? I think some of the, the legalism or the feeling like, oh, we've got to turn back is yeah. this idea that we've usurped Christmas from Jesus and we've made it about ourselves. Tasha, yeah. is that fair? Is that... Is that a good? Yeah, one? yeah. I, I've I've heard the Santa Claus. Also, I don't know how true it is. It stands for something like Satan's Claus. No. Which... <laughs> I had a no. I had a teacher once tell me that she said just yeah. rearrange the the names of Santa and you'll get Satan. <laughs> yeah. No. No. Um, now all that to say, yes, I wholeheartedly agree that commercialism is more of a danger to Christmas um, than any of the other stuff that we're talking about that came back from whether it's Sol Invictus or whatever. That's the real issue. Um, I mean, we live in a world where now both Thanksgiving and Christmas has taken a back seat to Black Friday, right? We've made it all about us. I don't think we've made it all about us just by virtue of having Christmas trees or garland. Um, we've made it all about us by our materialism. Um, now, the whole idea of Christmas, what it should be. Now, and, and here's the thing. There's actually a legend about, like, it, since we were just talking about the Christmas tree, there's a legend that Martin Luther first came out with. It. Don't know if this is true, but it seems in the running that he was out in the woods one day and looked up at the sky and through the leaves of the tree saw the stars. And it reminded him of how Christ came from his heavenly dwelling to make his abode with us. And so as a result of that, it led, inspired him to cut down the tree, bring it in his house and decorate it and kind of do this for his kids. Now that would make sense while Christmas trees for about 300 years were exclusively a Germanic thing. Hmm. Um, it didn't really come into prominence among others until like the mid 1800s where the British Royal family, that's the first time we have evidence of a tree being brought in like the um, uh, Prince Albert uh, brought one, one in if our memory serves me correctly. And there was a drawing of it and then it started to catch on all over the place. So that would make sense. It could also be another likely explanation that these came from the notion of paradise trees that were very popular during Adam and Eve plays in the 1500s, which would take place on December 24th. That's also a possibility. Um, and as far as uh, Santa Claus, it was typically a real person, St. Nicholas, um, he was a bishop. And then over time, certain things got embellished or whatever. Martin Luther wasn't crazy about the idea of that either because of what he was becoming. And so he thought Christmas should always should be about um, uh, uh, what was the what was the title like? 
Chris Kindle or whatever, which stands for like Christ child. Well, over time, people forgot what that meant, and then it became Chris Kringle, <laughs> right? So the reason that people are celebrating Santa Claus is because they, again, forgot about Jesus. Now, do I think that can be a danger? Yes, I do. Um, I think the figure of Santa can very easily displace Jesus. Um, but I think lots of things can very easily displace Jesus. And, and that's kind of a personal opinion. I, for me, I'm, 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 I'm not a big fan of kind of doing the whole Santa Claus thing. But I, I don't look down on others who do. Um, I know others that still do the Santa Claus thing, and they still make sure to keep Jesus about, I mean, to keep Christmas about Christ. So again, it's when it comes to idol worship, it's really about what's going on in your head, in your heart, in your will, in your intent. That's what's going on. It's a hard thing. Yes. Um, and always has been. Do you want me to get into Easter as well? Yes, please. Okay. So in Easter, the claim has been that this comes from the fertility goddess Ishtar, or maybe the spring, the Germanic spring goddess Astera. There's other names uh, that you get from other different reasons. You have uh, Ashtaroth um, and so forth. But again, like I was saying earlier, this is really just kind of more of an association fallacy when it comes to this. Um, Easter is called Easter in, um, in Germanic languages. Um, but in Latin and Greek derived languages, it was always called Pasha, you know, because it happened around the same time as Passover. That's the idea. Um, others have tried to say, well, it came from Astara, uh, 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 you know, the, um, the Germanic spring goddess. But there was only one person that ever suggested that goddess even existed or was worshiped. And that was um, uh, Saint Bede, I think in the seventh century. And that was not made, that claim was not made by anybody else. Um, a lot of scholars wonder if maybe he was mistaken or was confused with something else. Um, so where does the East, word Easter come from? Well, the most likely explanation, it seems to me, is that it comes from uh, the month of, how do you say it? Yusturimanoth, um, which was the fourth month of the old English calendar. And since Resurrection Day happened to fall in Yusturimanoth, uh, Yusturimanath, um, it became known as the Yusturimanath celebration. And over time, eventually became shortened to the Easter celebration. Um, so that seems like the most likely place where that came from. Well, what about Easter bunnies and all that kind of stuff? I mean, isn't that a fertility sign? I mean, that seems, just seems obvious. Some people mm -hmm. connect that with Ishtar. No, <laughs> not even. Um, the, 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 the soonest we find out, the soonest, the latest we hear about the Easter bunny, it happened well after paganism and ended in Europe. Paganism ended in Europe right around, I want to say like 1000 AD. We first hear the first reference about the Easter bunny. In fact, it wasn't a bunny, it was the Easter, uh, a hare in 1572. Um, in reference, I think it was like in the children's book. And a hare is very different than a bunny. They, they can't interbreed. They're not the social animals that are, appear together in groups and colonies like you see hares. Hares, you never, hares are solitary. You don't see them around any, any other hare unless they're specifically for mating. Um, so you, you, you don't really see that. Um, so how did the bunny ever get situation, situated with Easter? I think for the same reason, um, many of us think of bunnies when we think of spring. The bunnies are hiding during the winter when it's cold. When do we see them come out in abundance? In the spring. And so people started to associate that animal 
with Easter during the spring. But what about eggs, right? Isn't that, isn't that a pagan thing? Weren't they used in pagan rituals? Well, they were, but they were used for the same reason that meat and crops were used too. They were common, common items, people ate them. Um, the most reasonable likely explanation behind the eggs came from Lent. And what they used to do back in Europe with Lent is they would abstain for 40 days, as you know, but at the end of Lent, they would um, prepare hard boiled eggs. So at the end of the Easter celebration, they could eat them because those were a lot less expensive. Stuff like meat and so forth was what those who were more rich dined upon. That ended up being a good Easter treat. And then over time, since it was festive and everything, people started to hide them and paint them and what have you, right? So all that to say, don't buy in to any claim you hear, because I can guarantee you there's going to be more popping up out there um, that you and I even have time to look into. Um, but again, the fact of the matter stands, even if you assume all of this is true, what is wrong with taking something that someone has tainted and reclaiming it for God? Unless the Bible writers themselves are flat out wrong, unless God himself is flat out wrong about this, reclaiming things for God is scriptural. Um, questions on that? I don't know if I have a question or not. That was a whole lot of information again to soak in. I'm just kind of trying to soak it all in. I don't know. So I don't know. I've just, I've felt like it was kind of like wolf and sheep's clothing type of thing with how we're celebrating, you know, God, but uh, with all these weird traditions, but it makes sense to say that it's God reclaiming things. Because even with the plagues, when you think about that, that was God mocking they, the plagues of Egypt. He was mocking their gods. Yeah. And that's, that's why true. he did no. There was one other thing I forgot to mention, too, off the top of my mind, uh, Tasha, and even talking about reclaiming things of pagans. A lot of people don't know this. Um, the book of Proverbs, uh, what King Solomon did with the book of Proverbs, he actually modeled it after an Egyptian book called The Instruction of Aminamope, um, which was an Egyptian book. I mean, there are places I can show you that are verbatim copied. Um, and every scholar knows this. And he took direct phrases from it. And the point is, he found wisdom where he saw it. The point is, he found wisdom where he saw it. Wow. This has been a very interesting conversation. I've really loved hearing Alan's viewpoints on different issues and hearing a lot of history, which I didn't know about before. I hope you're enjoying it too, friend. Come back next week. We're going to have part two of this two-part conversation with Alan. You'll want to stick around. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting co-hosts to join me to share their personal stories and to ask their honest questions about the Christian faith. Each month, we hope to feature a different co-host and together invite guests on to share from their own faith journeys and experiences. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, 
authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all about what's so great about Jesus, I hope you come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.